Nehemiah chapter 2. Artaxerxes sends Nehemiah to Jerusalem. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it that you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me, except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing, because as yet, I'd said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, 
and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me, and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What's this you're doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Thanks be to God. Good evening, one and all. Let's pray. Lord, we want the page to come alive tonight. We want you to speak to us from this story of long ago and make it invaluable for us this coming week. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. I love uh, autobiographies, don't you? When you read, say, uh, Fred Truman's As It Was or Nelson Mandela's Long Walk to Freedom, you get an inside glimpse of what's going on in these people's lives and very often what we can learn from them. Nehemiah, chapter two, and the whole of Nehemiah really, is high quality autobiography. And it's very relevant to North Oxford, where there are many people who are high achievers as Nehemiah was. So let's try and put him in his context. This fifth century BC, when all this was going on, was the golden age of Athens with uh, architecture, and um, art and statesmanship and poetry captivating the civilized world. And across the Mediterranean, the little land of Judah was in a terrible state. Its northern neighbor, Israel, had been smashed to pieces by Assyria and never came back some 300 years earlier. And about 150 years after that, Judah suffered a similar fate at the hands of the Babylonians who had replaced the Assyrians as the dominant world power of the day. They had devastated this little country of Judah. They had taken their leaders and ruling classes off to Babylon in chains. They had raised the temple which was one of the great wonders of the world, they'd raised it to the ground and they'd taken its valuables for their own pagan temples. They had finished off the royal line of Judah for good and all. And the country itself became an impoverished province inhabited by odds and bods sort of type people on the edge of the Babylonian Empire, with all its main institutions of state 
completely dismantled. As they trudged off into exile, an exile lasting 70 years, Jews would have been totally cast down, utterly humiliated. The monarchy which God had instituted, gone. The land which God had given them, captured. The temple which God had designed, smashed. The promises of God, apparently worthless. Everything looked black in their broken world. But it wasn't. They found that God had not finished with them yet. God was still in control of that broken world. On the 16th of October in 539 BC, Cyrus the Persian had burst into Babylon, had captured it and established an empire which ran from Egypt to India and that lasted for 200 years. He was an enlightened ruler and amazingly allowed some of the Jews um, to return under Zerubbabel and start rebuilding Jerusalem. Their first priority was to uh, try and rebuild the temple, but it was a poor old thing compared with Solomon's temple that had been destroyed earlier on. And after a while, Ezra, who seems to have been sort of secretary for Jewish affairs under the Persians, was sent to Jerusalem in 458, I think it was, um, by um, the Persian king to enforce Jewish law, to tidy up the scene, and to deal with mixed marriages. But when our chapter 2 opens in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, 445 BC, bad news had come back to the Persian court where Nehemiah held a high position. There had been further trouble in Jerusalem. Neighboring people uh, who were very uh, unwilling to see Jerusalem rise from the rubble complained to the great king that um, they were troublesome people there in Jerusalem and that they were rebellious and that they were going to be trouble with a capital T. And uh, the great king looked into it and he checked up his records and he found that Jerusalem had indeed been a very uh, awkward customer um, for eastern potentates time and again. And so um, he decided that work should cease on the temple. And here were these straggly remainders of Jews sitting in an unfortified um, city with no walls around it. They were just rubble and they were in disgrace and the imperial edict had gone out. No more building. And yet, and yet, God had his purposes. As we saw last week, that news when it came broke Nehemiah's heart. Once again, things looked utterly bleak, but once again, they found that God was in control. And as we shall see, 
the nation was restored and 400 years later, Jesus, the hope of the world, was born. Persia, with its immense empire, had long since bit the dust. Greece, with its glories, had vanished into obscurity. But this tiny strip of land, Judah, was restored and became the seedbed of the greatest religion that the world has ever seen, the religion of Jesus. Now, doesn't that encourage us to adopt a believing worldview in a broken world? The Christian cause in the West, as we well know, is in low water, though that's certainly not the case in Africa and Asia. The new atheism seems to flourish. Society scorns the very idea of God. It's easy to despair and to give up. Let's learn from these Jewish exiles that the darkest hour is often just before the dawn and that God has often brought revival when all seemed lost and that he remains the God of history who holds the world in his hand. We can trust him. We are the people of confident hope in the midst of a broken world. So let's meet Nehemiah, a prayerful man in a secular job. Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king, Artaxerxes. This was not just a waiter's job. It was highly practical to taste the food and the wine first before the king in case any joker had poisoned it. And in that case, the cupbearer would writhe in agony and die and not the king. So it was a very a significant job as far as kings were concerned, but it was also a very privileged and influential job. Here was the man who could whisper into the ear of the king. And Nehemiah, the Jew, was astonishingly in that job. Nehemiah was a man who walked with God. We have seen last week an example of his regular prayer life in chapter 1. But in this chapter, we see him using another sort of prayer. There it is in verse 4. The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. You could call that an arrow prayer. It went straight from the heart of Nehemiah to the heart of God. And both regular prayer from chapter 1 and these arrow prayers from chapter 2 are really needed. You see, Nehemiah was extremely sad about the sad state of affairs in Jerusalem, and it showed on his face for the first time. It was a very dangerous business to be sad in front of the Persian monarch. It could cost you your life. And that's why it tells us here that Nehemiah was very much afraid. 
And so when the king turned to him and said, you're not ill, what's your trouble? Why are you sad? Nehemiah shook in his boots. And he did two things. He prayed to the God of heaven and he spoke to the king. I like it. He didn't kneel down, he didn't shut his eyes, didn't do any of those things. It was a flash prayer. Lord, get me out of this mess. Lord, solve this situation. And that was all he had time to do. And then he had to answer the king. And he found himself making a very powerful plea that he should be allowed to go back to rebuild this city in Judah where his fathers were buried. When he knew perfectly well that the king had signed a decree that all building was to stop. And he found, to his amazement, a brilliant answer to his prayers. I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, much good came from it. Let's develop those arrow prayers in our own lives, very short prayers. When we see a need, when we're tempted to lose our temper, when we hear an ambulance going by, when we sit to write an exam or to encourage a friend, when someone tells us that there's a need for prayer, there's the time to pray to the God of heaven. I've um, learnt to say in situations like that, okay, let's pray now. Not to say, yes, yes, I'll remember you in my prayers tonight. Let's pray now. And um, frequently this leads to embarrassing situations, sometimes delightful ones. I remember once I was doing this in the airport in Durban and uh, I got paged over the <laughs> loudspeaker system. Will passenger green please get to the plane because it's about to take off? Um, I prayed to the God of heaven and I went to the plane. Um, we need more men and women of prayer in secular jobs who cry to the Lord when the pressure buds strike in their job. And so we move on to the calling of this man, Nehemiah, which he woke up to when the king uh, made a pretty gracious offer to him. The calling, which is very different from what he'd been doing before, and the confidence that grew in him as he developed his request, and then the caution with which he handled it when he went into Jerusalem. You see all three of those things, calling and confidence and caution in what happens next. Nehemiah had previously been quite happy in his important and usually rather comfortable job. You wouldn't find him wanting to give it up to go back to that miserable bunch of stragglers in Jerusalem. No, thank you very much. But suddenly, his whole worldview changes. When the king says, what do you want? And all this 
this sorrow for the mess in Jerusalem welled up inside him and he burst out to the king and if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight let him send me to the city where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it suddenly everything changed he is willing now to go to despise Jerusalem he is willing for a change of job and although he came back to Susa once maybe twice he not only went to Judah but he governed it for the next 12 years I wonder is God calling some of you to change your job and you've been resisting it I twice resisted it I had a clear call to be, to be rector of St Aldate's and I turned it down flat and the Lord grabbed me by the scruff of the neck and sent me there same thing happened when I went to be professor in Vancouver I had no intention of going to Vancouver and the Lord grabbed me by the scruff of the neck and took me there. It may be that there's someone here tonight who's on the brink of a new job and you're shrinking from it, you don't want to do it. There may be that call of the Lord for you tonight. Don't resist it. And notice how as soon as he was sort of broken inside, his resistance was broken, uh, and, he, and he poured out his, his request to the, the great king. Notice how confident he quickly became about it all. He aims big to rebuild the city, to have letters of recommendation to the imperial governors, to have the keeper of the king's forests give him timber for the gates of the city and for his own residence. And then he finds that the king throws in an escort for good measure and cavalry and what have you. He hadn't asked for at all. Why? Because, verse 8, the gracious hand of God was on me. So often it's the case that when we make a hard decision for the Lord, we find he, he prospers us beyond our dreams. He pours out blessings upon us when we bent our knee to his will. But this confidence was not overconfidence. Look at verse 11. When he gets to Jerusalem, the second half of the chapter is all about what happens in Jerusalem, and when he gets there, he just sits under cover for three days, sussing it out. And then, he makes a night reconnaissance so as to get first-hand evidence about the situation. He was very discreet. He told nobody his plans. But then he made this nighttime visit, and it's absolutely so vivid, isn't it? He goes out of the valley gate and moved on to the fountain gate in the king's pool and all this sort of stuff. I love that bit where the, 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 the rubble of the walls is so smashed, such a mess, that his donkey couldn't even get through. And he goes back the way that he came. 
he saw for himself the situation. He saw for himself what a massive job awaited him. And so I think the word for us is to be confident where God has put us, but to hasten slowly and not to make rash initial moves. This leads us, of course, on to action and leadership and partnership. Although rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem was so different from the job he'd been doing in Susa as cupbearer to the king, Nehemiah must have realized that his previous training and experience of life had equipped him in a number of ways for it. Particularly, I think, his job in, in the top cadre of leadership at uh, Susa um, had prepared him for the leadership that he was going to exercise in this province. And so now he moves from conviction of God's call to action. There is no doubt of his leadership gifts. Verse 29 is a very... Um, very clear verse 9 would have been verse 29 there isn't a verse 29 um, where am I yeah verse uh, 18 uh, yes verse 17 to 19 I said to these scruffy leaders that were hanging around in Jerusalem you see the trouble we are in Jerusalem lies in ruins his gates have been burnt with fire. The first thing he does to them is to show that he understands the problem that they all face. He then tells them about the gracious answer to prayer that God had given him from the great king. And then, on those two grounds, he says, come on, let's rebuild. There's leadership for you. You empathize with the situation. You show the reasons why you're confident. And you take a lead. Leaders have to lead. And when leaders do lead, in this sort of way, you'll find that other people will come along as well. And they replied, yeah, let's start rebuilding. It's infectious. They'd sat for years without any rebuilding. And now a leader comes along, energizes them, and let's start building. Good leadership involves two things. One is leaders must lead. The other is that you need a fellowship of leadership. You don't need a one-man band that alienates people but you need a gathering of people to go together to attack the problem in hand. And we've certainly got a building program that is called for here at um, uh, St. Andrews. Uh, this church was built in the teeth of opposition uh, years ago, uh, much as Jerusalem <laughs> had been. Uh, and although uh, the gates are not burnt with fire, um, uh, the, uh, the city council is going to come and burn down Southside unless we do something about it in the reasonably near future. And there is going to be a key meeting on the subject to meet the architect and Uncle Tom Cobbley and all tomorrow night. 
So it's an occasion to turn up. The leadership is saying, let us build. And I think the call to us is to come alongside and say, yes, it's going to be costly, it's going to be demanding, but we've got to rebuild action, leadership, and partnership. And then the last thing I notice in this, in this story is opposition from supposed friends. Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab, when they heard about it, they were not pleased. It is hard to face opposition from those you imagine to be your friends, or at any rate, to be broadly on the same side as you. And that is what Nehemiah had to put up with persistently. Sanballat became Nehemiah's arch-rival. He was the governor of Samaria for the Persians, and probably after the Persian great king had ordered work to stop on rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem, probably Sanballat had stepped in um, and had been given temporary jurisdiction uh, over Judah. We don't know, but that seems fairly likely. So he, no wonder he wasn't pleased when Nehemiah comes, armed with all these letters uh, from Artaxerxes, to say that he's to take over. He was not one very chuffed customer. And then Tobiah had close personal links inside Jerusalem. We'll find that when we get to chapter 6. And he may well have been Samballat's stooge, his deputy in Jerusalem. At all events, Nehemiah might have expected their help. After all, he'd got letters of introduction from the Persian king, and both Sanballat and Tobiah were at least half Jews. Tobiah had a Jewish name, and Sanballat gave Jewish names to his children. So you might have expected them to have given at any rate uh, a grudging support, but not a bit of it. They became fierce enemies, both personally to Nehemiah and to the building program uh, that he was um, undertaking. Now, that's very disappointing when that happens. You're doing something for the Lord, and people arise to pull you down and to stop the work. That is enormously discouraging for everybody. I'm sure Nehemiah felt um, hurt and he felt let down by all this. We'll see on later evenings how it played out. But Nehemiah gives us an example of a very wise approach. First, he made sure that he really was serving the Lord in this project. The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. Firm courteous and straight from the shoulder. He was clear that the Lord was behind the project and that gave him great confidence in God to confront these people who were trying to tear him, to tear him down. And so he was able to say quietly and firmly, we will start rebuilding. And to add the postscript, by the way, you three have no share in Jerusalem or any historic claim to it.
So what can we take away from this wonderful chapter of autobiography? Well, I think we can take five things pretty clearly. The importance of prayer, regular prayer, and arrow prayers in our lives. Secondly, the assurance that God is the Lord of history. And however black the outlook, try the uplook, because he's on the throne. Thirdly, the expectation that God can use secular people and secular events to further his work, as he did in this situation, Artaxerxes and the resources of the Persian Empire. Fourthly, the willingness to change plans, to undertake tough projects, even to change career and country, if God is calling you to do it. And finally, the need to combine confidence with caution and leadership with partnership and to keep at it, even in the face of opposition from those we thought mistakenly were friends. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can learn so much, uh, not just from gospels and letters and psalms, but from story like this. And we pray that Nehemiah may nerve us to face this week with confidence, with discretion, with a solid prayer before each day, looking up to you in odd moments of the day, and being prepared to face hardship and opposition, hurts and disappointment, with our hands in yours, knowing that however difficult the situation, however dark the outlook, you are in control of history. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.